You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. So let me just, let me bring you into our passage, uh, give you a little bit of context. For the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at a portion of the book of Luke that describes what the church has historically called Passion Week. And it's called Passion Week because in Acts 1-3 in the King James Version, it speaks of Jesus' passion or his suffering. So Jesus rode into town on a donkey on Sunday, and then he occupied the temple. That's what we saw last week. He drove out the money changers. He occupied the temple. And for three days, he argued and he taught and he possessed the temple. And he made the Pharisees very, very angry. On Thursday, he took his final Passover meal with his disciples. On Friday, he was on the cross, okay? So where we are right now in this passage, it'll be Luke 21, if you have your Bible. Uh, Luke 21 takes place on Wednesday afternoon or evening. And he and his disciples are moving back out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, which is where they have been staying. So I have a picture for you. Um, This is a picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Uh, That structure right there that's kind of square with the fence around it, that is the Temple Mount, okay? That is a modern, uh, modern, you know, within the last four or five hundred years. Um, uh, wall there, that's not the, that's not the original wall, uh, but you can see the Dome of the Mosque. That is a Muslim uh, facility there, but that is located on the site where the temple existed, okay, in Jesus' day. So Herod's temple existed right there where that gold dome is. And so the the picture is taken from the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples were staying uh, on the Mount of Olives. It's about a 10-minute walk from the city. And so at the end of the day, they're walking up together. And so Jesus, knowing that his time is approaching, um, maybe he turns around and he just looks back at the city. And so the other guys, they also look at the city. And they start to admire the temple, and it would have been very impressive. It was a very impressive structure to begin with, but at night with flaming torches all around it, it would have been absolutely beautiful. And so they say in verse 5, while some of them were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So the disciples are saying what a beautiful sight the temple is, but Jesus has something entirely different that he wants to teach them tonight. Look at verses 5 through 7. And he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be, uh, when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of these things that are about to take place? All right, the first thing I need you to understand here is that this would have been a terribly shocking uh, statement. For the disciples to hear, that this temple would be torn down. Because in their mind, and according to Old Testament law, there was only one place where you could worship. And these guys could not have imagined that they would be able to be involved in Judaistic religion apart from the temple. You see, in the Mosaic Law, there was one central altar. That's where you offered sacrifice. That's where you worship. Because we're 2,000 years after the cross, right? We understand that we worship in spirit and truth. We can worship anywhere that we want to, they didn't think like that, okay? So they're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? The other thing that I think is probably going on in their minds here is that Jesus has been acting very messianically 
all week long. He rode into town like a king. He possessed the temple. He taught with authority. And so there's a good chance that these young men are thinking that he's just going to move in and he's going to take over the temple and he's going to reign there as king any day. And they're on the ground floor of this messianic operation. In other words, they're going to be a part of that. So when Jesus says, not one stone of this temple is going to be left on another, hear them saying, what? When is this going to happen? This, this doesn't fit into our messianic plan. And this is what Jesus, by the way, has been doing for weeks and weeks now as we've gone through the book of Luke. He takes something that seems religious and it seems like the way God would do things, at least to man, and he says, no, that's not the way God does it at all. There's an entirely different plan and he's going to lay that out for them today. So this section in chapter 21, you may have heard of it before. It's called the Olivet Discourse um, in, in many translations of the Bible. It's also contained in Matthew 24 and 25. It's in Mark chapter 13. And it is a passage that contains uh, what we would call eschatology. That's the study of the end times. All right, so this is Jesus' presentation of what is going to happen. All right, I think it's a very simple presentation of the future. I think it's a very clear presentation of the future. It's not a very happy presentation of the future, okay? So today, pretty much how I've organized this passage, we're just going to walk down through it, and we have five things. We're going to see five things that we can expect as the second coming of Jesus approaches, okay? All right, so what should we expect? What to expect, number one, the world is going to get worse not better. The world is going to get worse, not better. Look at verses 8 through 11. And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. All right, so you could call this paragraph simply reasons why you shouldn't read the news to see if Jesus is coming back. All right? And, and here's why. And I know you, if I've been tempted, I'm tempted like this. You know, you turn, you, you, you get up in the morning, you turn on your computer, I don't know, maybe you still read the newspaper. But we see, we see all of these events happening. We see nation fighting against nation, and Iran and Russia are hanging out together, and the Pacific uh, Ring of Fire, you've got volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes. And it's easy to kind of start to say, well, Jesus must be coming back soon because these things are happening. Here's the truth. And he says this in verse 9. Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And what I think he's saying here, and what we can learn for this is, these things will characterize the entire time from his first coming to his second coming, okay? So, so what kind of things are they going to be? Well, religious confusion. We ought to expect religious confusion. Why? Because Jesus said there would be religious confusion. He says, see that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So we live in a time that is filled specifically with false Christianity, and I think it's very important here. Jesus doesn't warn his disciples about false religion. He warns them about false Christianity. He says, 
be on guard because people are going to come in my name. People are even going to come and they're going to claim to be me. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Be careful. He actually says, be careful that you are not led astray. So there's a command. And so we want to take precautions because we don't want to be fooled. We don't want to be fooled by those who claim that they are Christ or who claim that they have a message of Christ, but they, they don't really. Listen, this book right here, I don't read this book because I want to get smarter. I don't get read this book because I want to be more pious. I don't read this book because I want people to look at me and think that I am a godly man. I read this book because it reveals to me who God is. And specifically, it reveals to me who God is in the person of Jesus Christ, okay? And so, if I am going to live on guard against false Christs, against people who are going to be presenting a gospel other than the one that has been delivered to us through the prophets and the apostles, then I have to know the real Christ. I have to know the real message of the gospel so that I can be on guard against false messages of the gospel. Y'all, don't take this for granted. Don't take this for granted. I mean, Jesus warns his disciples to be on guard against false Christs. So how much more should we be prepared? The second thing he warns of is war. He says, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And if you look at the history of the last 2,000 years, you will see that it is, in fact, a history of war. Most specifically, in the century that we just finished, um, the 1900s, there was more war and more destruction in that century, most people estimate, than any century in the world before. World War II alone accounted for 60 million deaths, which was over 3% of the world at that time. The war before that, World War I, was 13 million deaths, soldiers and civilians. You had the Boxer Rebellion in China. You had the Russian Revolution. We had the Vietnam War, the Korean War, the Gulf War. We had genocide in Rwanda and other places. It was a century of tremendous bloodshed. And there's no reason to believe that the century we are in will be any different. And so I say that just to say it's funny that so many human beings think that we're getting better. They think that we're making progress. They think that somehow we're going to come and be at peace with one another. Because what Jesus says is that you should expect wars. You should expect that nations will fight against nation. And so the lesson here for us is simply don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This is what Jesus told us to expect. And then finally, natural disasters. There will be earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. We've certainly seen a lot of that lately, even in our own country, with hurricanes and wildfires. I do think it's interesting. I wonder if the reason why it feels like there's so much natural disaster is because we get information so much faster these days. You know, like an earthquake in Chile a hundred years ago would have taken like weeks or months for information to reach Savannah, Georgia, and now we know about it in minutes, you know. So it could be some of that. But there's another sense in which Jesus says in, in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse that these things are birth pains. They're birth pains that are coming. They don't symbolize the end. They don't, they don't prove that the end is coming, but they certainly prove that the end is near. And so I think it's safe for us to say 
that as these things increase and become more frequent, we can see that the return of Jesus is more imminent. So, what's the comfort that we can take from this expectation? And that's simply this. God is in control. God is in control. At a time when the world seems to be more and more out of control, Christians can rest assured that none of this has slipped up on God. This is exactly what Jesus told us to expect. Sin has had a devastating effect on this world and on mankind. And Jesus has died on the cross, and so those who believe in Him, who put their trust in Him, are are being recreated. We are made new in Christ, but the curse of sin that brings disasters and war and, and, and illness is going to be here until Jesus returns. And so that's one more reason why we as a church should say, Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly and reverse the curse. Return. This is exactly what he said we should expect. And he is in control. All right. What to expect, number two. It doesn't get happier, folks. It doesn't get happier until the end. It gets better at the end. Okay, so hang with me. What to expect, number two. Followers of Jesus will be persecuted. Followers of Jesus will be persecuted, verses 12 through 19. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of, the, of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus begins by saying, okay, but before all of this, okay, so wars, rumors of wars, uh, pestilence, um, uh, false Christ, that's going to characterize the time between my two comings. Now he looks at these, at these guys and he says, okay, but you, you can expect persecution, all right? And, and he says you can expect persecutions from two places. You can expect persecution from government, and you can even expect persecutions from those you love. So pretty much the entire book of Acts is a record of the apostles being persecuted by both the religious authorities in Jerusalem and the Roman authorities for their faith in Jesus Christ. And that that just goes to show that immediately the message of Jesus Christ just came like smack up against the governing authorities of the day. But Jesus says, look, that's not going to be a bad thing. And I'll tell you why. It's not going to be a bad thing because it's going to give you an opportunity to testify about me. There's purpose in the persecution. And so because of your persecution, you're going to be able to bear witness. So when we, as believers, are persecuted for our faith, when we have to give an account for the hope that is within us, we can know that Jesus is going to use that as a powerful witness. And this has been true throughout the ages, throughout the the time since he ascended back into heaven. The most powerful witness for Jesus has always been those who are willing to suffer and die for their faith. And the truth is the enemies of Christ believe that they can extinguish the truth about Jesus Christ by, by killing or by locking Christians up or by persecuting, but the opposite is just always true. Because even today in, in the world, 
in places where the church is under tremendous persecution, we find the gospel going out and spreading like wildfire. And I actually think it should be a warning to us as we enjoy, praise God, we're not being persecuted right now, but it's a good reason for us to be like, we need to make sure and we're focusing the right things. Because when you're being forced like that to really give an account for your faith, you understand better what's true. He says something interesting here. He says, settle it, therefore, in your mind not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And, and what he's not saying here is don't prepare, don't read your Bible, don't give any thought to this. What he's saying, and remember, this is in the context of sudden persecution, he's saying if you don't feel ready, Christian, believer, if you worry that if you were ever put into a situation where you are going to have to give an account for your faith, don't worry about that because Jesus will give you the words to say. That's what he's saying. He will be there for you. He will take care of you. I love what he says there. He says, he says you will be able, uh, none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. That's awesome, y'all. If you get caught, if you get put in a place where you have to give an account for the faith that you hold to, you can trust not only that Jesus will give you the words, but he will give you words that the person that you're testifying to will not be able to, to contradict. I love that. I love that. Secondly, he says you'll be persecuted by your family, brothers, mothers, fathers. And this is simply, in that culture, if you claimed Jesus as Messiah, you would certainly be kicked out of the synagogue. They don't want anything else to do with you. And if you were kicked out of the synagogue, you would probably be kicked out of your family. If you were kicked out of your family, there's a good chance you would lose your home and your job because they were all one thing. And Jesus is is simply saying, in the midst of that, in the midst of that, he's going to be with you. Maybe some of you today, maybe you're here, maybe you're experiencing this kind of persecution. Maybe you've become a believer of Christ, and the people in your family think the things that you believe now are absolutely absurd. Maybe going home for Thanksgiving or Christmas is not a fun time with you because you know that you're going to be uh, forced to sort of respond to these accusations about these things that you believe that nobody understands. The comfort here is simply this. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. The comfort is that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He says at the end of this passage, he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. And that's just a promise here that you will persevere. He says, not a hair of your head will perish. And he doesn't mean that none of your hair is going to fall out. He doesn't mean that you're never going to get a haircut. What he means is that which is the, the least about you, that which is the least of who you actually are, of your life, those who will lose their life for Christ will find it. Those who who, who have the whole world will lose their lives. He's saying that which is important about you, your soul, none of it will be lost. None of it will be lost. And by your endurance, by your patience, you will gain your life. You will gain true life in Jesus Christ. Persecution has been a way of life for Christians for 2,000 years. And it is today still all over the world. I think about people in North Korea and in China who are stuck right now in prison. And no doubt, they're enduring great pain and suffering. But what I read over and over in those accounts is that there is great grace 
in those experiences, that those people speak of a closeness with Christ and a, and a, and a, and a, a sense of the Holy Spirit that is not common to those who are not living under those circumstances. You know, in Acts chapter 5, these same young men, when they get arrested and brought before the leaders in Jerusalem and they get beaten and they get sent back out, the writer of Acts, Luke, actually says, he says, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And so I believe, y'all, I believe with all my heart that those of us who trust in Christ can absolutely count on him to be with us should we ever be called upon to give an account for our faith before a government authority, for going to jail. Even if our families were to turn on us, Jesus will be there. He will not leave us nor forsake us. Third, what to expect, number three, the destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem. Look at verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these will be days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infant in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, so remember, the initial question was, when are these things going to happen? When are the stones going to be taken apart from the temple in Jerusalem? So this is Jesus' answer, okay? And so Jesus is giving this prophecy 40 years before uh, the actual historical event, okay? So you can go, you can, you can look up on your computer this afternoon. In 70 A.D., the temple and the, the city of Jerusalem were destroyed, all right? In 66 A.D., the, the Jews rebelled against Rome, and they took possession of the city. And so for four years, they actually had possession of, uh, of, of Jerusalem, okay? And, and so after four years, uh, an emperor named Titus uh, actually, a, a general named Titus, he would become a Roman emperor. He, he laid siege to the city, okay, and he put this tight siege all around the city. And, and he just kept squeezing in and squeezing in. And the rebels, the rebels tried to withstand, uh, but it was a tight siege. And he actually started breaking through the walls there. And they, they pushed them all the way in to where most of the rebels were contained within the temple. And, and so Titus's original intent was that he would preserve Herod's temple, which was a beautiful thing, and he would turn it into a temple for Roman gods, okay? But once the temple, uh, the, the soldiers got into the city, they got frustrated, and they started just sort of destroying everything, and they started throwing flaming um, wood over the, the, the walls of the temple, and so the temple got on fire, and it burned. And in the end, they were all so frustrated that they just, uh, Titus ended up saying, just destroy the temple, destroy all of it, okay? So Jesus said... Not one stone will be left on another. All right, so that's exactly what happened. I've got a, a slide up here. You can see if, if you can, there's, these are the stones, and, and this is in Jerusalem. This is, this is where the temple used to be, and these large stones are just piled up everywhere in that area. So I read this one time, you know, it's not in the Bible, but it sounds, it's, you know, his, historic history, um, that, that the, the gold of the temple, it was so hot, the fire was so high that the gold of the temple melted 
and, and got down in the cracks of all of these stones, okay? And so the, the Roman soldiers, because they were so desperate to get the stones, literally like chiseled all of the stones up so that they could get the, the gold out from the cracks and the crevices, okay? So that's why, ultimately, there was not one stone left on another. All right, so what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this 2,000 years later? Remember, he's telling his disciples what to watch for. In 66 AD, when that, those people rebelled, another Roman general came and attacked the city. His name was Gallus. And he attacked the city, and he laid siege to the city. But for some unknown reason, and it's, it's never been understood in history, he withdrew. He did, not, he did not move in like Titus did. Well, the Christians in the city knew Jesus' words, and they knew that he had said, when you see the city surrounded, get out. So all the Christians left Jerusalem, and all the Christians, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian who has no reason, by the way, to back up Christian teaching, said no Christians were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem because they had all gotten out, according to the words of Jesus, okay? Here's how I think this applies to us. Number one, the reality of God's judgment. That's one thing, the reality of God's judgment. So Jesus said, this is going to happen. It was horrific, and it really happened. And this was the fulfillment of, of judgment on God's people that had been coming for many years. They rejected the Messiah. They had um, rebelled against God and His teaching. So this was ultimately just the, 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 the final step. God had been patiently waiting on them, but ultimately that patience just ran out, all right? But secondly, it points to another time of judgment that is still to come, and that is when Jesus returns. And God is being patient with us right now. God is being patient with us, and, and now is the time because that patience is going to run out, just like it ran out in, in 70 AD with the Jewish people, and it's going to run out again. Jesus says there, he says, until the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. J- Jerusalem is going to be, is going to be laid waste for a, for a period of time, now almost 2,000 years. During that time, God is being patient but judgment is going to come, all right? Here's the comfort. The comfort is this. This prophecy came true. The rest of it will too. This prophecy came true. The rest of it will too. And so we can trust that as we read these things contained in the Scripture, we can know that they're really going to come true. All of the prophecies about Jesus' first coming came true literally. All of the prophecies about Jesus' second coming come true literally as well. All right. One more thing to expect. Did I say five things? I think there's only four things. Number four, what to expect. Number four, the return of Jesus. What to expect, the return of Jesus. So Jesus has told his disciples, there's going to be a long time of wars, false teaching, disasters. You personally are going to be persecuted. The temple in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Now he says, then I'm coming back. This is the distant future. This is a brief account. It's actually, as we're going to look at it in just a second, it's a very vivid account of Jesus' return, but it's a short account, four verses. If you want to read more about everything that's going to happen when Jesus returns, this pretty much Revelation 6 through 19 is 
contained in verses 20 through 23, or 25 through 28 here. Okay, so let me read uh, verse 25 through 28, and then we're going to just walk through it verse by verse, because it's, it's really quite a stunning picture. Um, verse 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and the earth, on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding about what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Okay, first of all, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. All right, so just prior to the, the, the second coming, the universe is going to go into chaos, all right? If you remember from Daniel uh, last year, Daniel 12 verse 1 says, there will be a time of tribulation such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time, all right? In the Bible, it is clear that at the beginning of this tribulation time, all of the sun and the moon and the stars will go dark. Listen to the, the book of Job, okay? The prophet Job prophesies about the day of the Lord. Three times he says this. Chapter 2, verse 10, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Chapter 2, verse 31, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Chapter 3, verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Y'all, in that day, God will literally turn out the lights right before Jesus returns. It says, the nations will be perplexed. There will be chaos. Nobody is going to know what's going on. Imagine the sun dark, the moon dark, the stars dark. It says, the oceans will be in chaos. Mountains will be exploding. And nobody will have any explanation for what's going on. I think of those documentaries, you know, like on the Discovery Channel that they show like around Christmas and Easter, and it's like, how did the parting of the Red Sea happen, or what about the flood, or how did the, how did the, the plagues, you know, let's give a natural explanation for the plagues. There will be none of that. There will be no conference on the effects of climate change. Just, just imagine if your entire worldview was settled anti-supernaturalism, and then all of this starts to occur. And you can see why people are reacting out of perplexity and fear. So, see, Jesus is describing this is how the world ends. This is how the world ends. God is beginning the process of undoing a creation that has been cursed by sin so that he can remake it under his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 26, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming to the world. This world fainting here, it actually means to breathe out or to expire. And, and it could very well mean that people are literally scared to death. People are fainting from fear. And by the way, this is, none of this is new information. Jesus is telling us what has already been told us by the Old Testament prophets. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 8. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Listen to the passage from Revelation 6. So this is Jesus' revelation to John 
about this same incident. It says, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Do you know what always strikes me about that passage whenever I read Revelation, in Revelation 6? It always strikes me that these kings of the earth and these rich people and the slaves and the free, they see the supernatural things coming. And in that passage, it says they recognize save us from the wrath that is coming from the one who is on the throne and from the, 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 the lamb who was slain. So they see the supernatural acts and they know that it's coming from God and they still refuse to repent. How hard-hearted do you have to be to refuse to repent when you see all of that going on? It will be a stunning time of the multitudes literally shaking their fist at God and saying, what else do you have? Which leads us to verse 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Remember, it's been plunged into great darkness. It's pitch black on the earth. And into that darkness, on a day, that day, the day that the Father has ordained, into that darkness, Jesus will appear in all His glory and the lights will come on again. I hope this also reminds you of the study that we did in Daniel. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I want to just plant a little seed with you this morning, and I hope you'll take me up on it. I want to encourage you to get to know the Old Testament prophets better. I, I know that probably sounds crazy to some of you, but we have to understand that New Testament writers are writing with an assumption that we know at least something about what's going on in the prophets, okay? I want to encourage you this afternoon or sometime this week, if you're writing stuff down, put Zechariah 12 through 13, chapters 12 through 13, and I'd like for you to go and read that. Zechariah is the next to the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi is next. If you go all the way to Matthew, you're in the New Testament, okay? So there's, it's pretty easy to find. Zechariah 12 through 14, read the things you find there. Things like Jesus is going to come and his feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. That, that same Mount of Olives where he is giving this address, one day Jesus is literally going to touch his feet. And you know what it says in Zechariah? It says the mountain of olives is going to be split in two. It says that Jerusalem is going to be raised up and that water is going to flow from Jerusalem one side down into the Mediterranean and one side down into the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is going to spring to life. It says that the literally the world as we know it in the Middle East is going to change because Jerusalem is going to be raised up as a mountain and there will be a great plateau all around it. What I want you to see is this. This is real. It's tangible. 
This is not spiritual stuff. The scriptures are talking about actual, real things that are going to happen. And just as Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and it really happened, so those things are really going to happen as well. And it's not Harry Potter, and it's not Star Wars, and it's not Lord of the Rings. It's for real. And why should we care? Because church, that is the moment that we're waiting for. Historically, the church has believed that Jesus died, he rose from the grave, he ascended to the Father, and he is coming back. Verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your head, hands because your redemption is drawing near. This is it. Listen to how Paul describes the church in 1 uh, Thessalonians. He says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Church, that's what we do. Jesus Christ is who we are waiting for. And the comfort here is simply we're nearer than we've ever been before. For 2,000 years, the church has been waiting. For 2,000 years, the curse has been on this earth, or rather for 6,000 years or since Adam sinned. But when Jesus returns, there'll be no more sickness, war, natural disaster, or false religion. That sin that so easily entangles us, that so quickly wells up within us, it'll be gone, and death will be no more. And that is our hope. And we love him, and we love our neighbor, and we await for him and his promised return. So how should we live in light of this? How do we live in light of this? Jesus concludes this passage for himself. We don't have to work real hard at it here. Number one, he tells this parable of the fig tree, and his point is simply, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Verse 29 through 33, he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Very simply, these people live in an agrarian society. They understood how to look for the changing of the seasons. They knew that when a fig tree put out its new leaves, that that meant that summer was coming. And so Jesus is simply saying, just like you know that summer is coming when the fig tree puts out its leaves, so you will know when you see these things that the Son of Man is coming. Secondly, don't be surprised and be ready. Watch and pray. Be ready, watch and pray. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Four things in this passage, real quick. Vigilance, vigilance, watch, watch. Brothers and sisters, if we believe this is going to happen, then reasonably, rationally, we will be living our lives in such a way that we will be ready for His return. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm not that interested in prophecy. I don't understand it. There's too much disagreement. I don't want to study that. Don't you think that's exactly what Satan wants? 
Don't you think it's exactly what the powers of darkness want so that we, even though they're defeated, that we don't read about the things that Jesus has told us about him coming back? Don't you think it's exactly what Satan wants for us to be found ignorant and unprepared? Jesus says, watch your life. Don't be affected by drunkenness and by the cares of life. Don't let your heart be weighed down and distracted by unimportant things. And y'all, he's talking to believers. He's talking to his disciples. Somehow there, in a way, I don't fully understand it. He's saying, you don't want to be found ashamed when I return. Be found faithful. When, when the king of all creation appears... And he looks, we look at him and he looks at us and we know that he can read our every thought. We want to be found obedient and faithful at that time. Secondly, proclamation. Jesus says this will come on all those who are on the face of the earth. So it should motivate us to evangelism. It should motivate us to tell that judgment is coming. Third, he says prayer. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. As I read this passage, as I've studied it all week long, I am, I am very aware of my inadequacy. And so I pray, God, help me to be prepared. Help me to face these things with grace. And then finally, worship. Over the last few months, God has providentially led us to study the end times, you know, in several different places from this pulpit, which is, you know, that's his design, and he's, he's got to be teaching us something as a church because of that. Ultimately, I hope that it leads you to greater worship. I hope that it leads you to greater worship. I hope that you are more and more aware that God is God, and I am not, and you are not. He's God. As the musicians come back up to lead us in praise and, and worship through song this morning, my prayer is that a passage like this will lead us to continue to worship as we leave here. That's my prayer, that we will continue to worship. Because it's one thing for us to sit around today and to think thoughts about God and to think about His glorious appearing. It's another thing altogether for us to go out from here and live as though those things are true. So the question is this. Jesus could come back at 3 o'clock today. He could return. He could call us, the church, home. Will you be ready? What are you going to be doing at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? What are you going to be doing at 3 o'clock in the morning? Let God give us grace as a church to be found faithful. I, I hope that as the years go by that it can be said about CBC that they are a people who are anxiously awaiting the return of their Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Let that be true. Let's pray. Gracious Father, these are stunning words. They're stunning words that you have given us. Father, thank you that you have not left us in the dark about these things. Thank you that you have told us what is true. Father, I do pray that they would lead us to worship. God, you are God, and I am not. Father, as we turn now to sing and then to baptism, Lord, we praise you that you are working to bring new people into your body, into our family. Lord, continue to do so. May this passage lead us to greater proclamation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.